0: Hello and welcome to the Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host Carter Umhau, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today I have the honor to, of talking with Tina Muir. And I'm sitting down with her as well as Opal co-founder and head of the exercise and sport program, Cara Bazzi. Tina, welcome
1: to the Appetite. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here and. Um I'm thankful for you guys and, and all that Opal has done. I mean, um, you know, I've been admiring you from afar for many years, and I just love what you're doing to to help so many people. So I'm just as excited to be here. Thanks oh, to thank you. It means a lot to hear you say that. Hmm.
0: So for those um, of our listeners that, that aren't familiar with you, can you just let us know a little bit about um, who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah. So um, as people probably already guessed, I am British, but I live <laughs> in the U.S. Uh, have been here for uh, I think 12 maybe 14 years at this point so I'm pretty much American at this point I came over here initially on a scholarship to run a university in Michigan not at Michigan whenever I say that people oh, yeah. think oh you went to Michigan <laughs> not at Michigan, in good, Michigan. Dis- good distinction um, <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean I'd love to say around for you of but I didn't so, <laughs> um Yeah, so I went to school here and just kind of stayed here, met my husband, and then continued on as a elite slash professional runner. And I did pretty well. I ran I represented Great Britain in a world in the World Half Marathon Championships, which was my ultimate goal. And I got my marathon down to two thirty six, which is funny at this point in time, especially with the way American marathoning has progressed. In two thousand sixteen uh, 2.36 is pretty damn good, mm-hmm, um, yeah. but now the level has stepped up so much that it doesn't really feel as, as impressive anymore because the, just the quality, especially over here in the U.S., but in the U.K. and worldwide as well, has just blown up. Yeah, it's so, crazy, um, huh? I, I was really proud of that. Um, had I still been running now, I think I that wouldn't have felt enough, but I'm kind of mostly known for my decision to stop running. Three months after running uh, my personal best in the marathon, less than a year after running for Great Britain in the World Championships, I quit running potentially forever um, because I had not had a period in nine years. And I also was kind of burned out of the sport at that Mm -hmm. point from probably a lot of it, my, um, you know, lack of fueling, but a lot of it also just from many years of training. And uh, I became kind of one of the faces of um, overcoming amenorrhea and um, Mm -hmm. trying to convince women to, to get their periods back. And and get the health back. And I fell pregnant within ten weeks of stopping running. Wow! So yeah. I kind of like to think <laughs> I'm a a little bit of a beacon of hope for people that even if you haven't had a period, it's not doesn't mean it can't be fixed. Mm. And that and how old is that child now?
2: Just over two, okay. and I'm pregnant with my second child. Uh, yes. as well. <laughs>
1: congratulations!
2: And there's a bit the recent the big news about um, signing with a shoe company.
1: Yes. So um in January Ultra running which is one of the shoe companies kind of made history by becoming one of the first or the first shoe shoe brand running shoe brand to sign not just one but two pregnant runners. They are very aware that uh, Alicia Montaño who has been a huge player in the kind of uh, rights for women getting getting things for women that we've deserved for a long time. Wow. Um, myself and Alicia, um, uh, neither of us expect to be running personal best anytime this year, but ultra still decided to take that step and support us and say, you know, you're so much more than your performance. So, so really cool. cool thing to be a part of.
2: So cool. To yeah. not just talk the talk, but do it.
1: Yeah. That mm-hmm. was something that I was
0: so, um, interested in when I read about that because to, to be valued for more than just your time your personal bests and, and your capacity, but also for your voice. Mm-hmm. That feels like probably a very large symbol of a shift in the running culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot more of the brands had shown, I mean, some of the brands, not not at all, but quite a few brands had kind of spit, like tolerated pregnancy. Mm-hmm. If you kind of happened to get pregnant during your contract, oh, you know, congratulations, you know, we hope to see you back out there sometime soon. Whereas this signing two people while pregnant is, yeah, just a massive sign that, um, you know, we are choosing you because of your pregnancy or as that is a part of you rather than despite the fact that you might make that choice.
0: So Tina, I want to back up a little bit and ask you a little bit more about what running was like before this new season for you, um, before you quit. Um, you spoke some of that. the symptom of that being nine years without a period, but I'm assuming there was some disordered eating during that time
1: as well? Yeah, the period was kind of the, the big, <laughs> giant red flag. Yeah, But there was obviously other things that I, looking back on now, uh, my body was screaming at me for help. Uh, I know both of you will kind of chuckle at this and probably many of your listeners. I had seen many, quote unquote, nutritionists over the years, spoken to people who had looked at my diet, taken a three day window and said, actually, it looks fine. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was only when I started working with Nancy Clark that oh, okay. it really dawned on me that actually I was restricting a lot. And I knew I was restricting, but as I've learned a lot, and as you both know, and many of your listeners probably know, everyone is different. And, you know, I would compare myself to other elite runners. You know, I would say, well, I'm eating more than they are. So it's obviously not food. Um, But, you know, for me, that wasn't enough, because friends could get away with having their periods and eating less and being leaner, lighter. Um, That doesn't mean that I could. So I think I've learned a lot about, you know, that everyone is different, and we all have our own kind of set point on what our body is comfortable with. I always saw that as a disadvantage that it wasn't fair that my body seemed to be so sensitive. However, now I see it as a big advantage because, you know, I have this indicator that I need to make a change in my life, whereas other people may end up further down a path um, or may end up kind of putting their body in more extreme danger um, before they realise because they don't have that warning sign. But I did have other things like I was convinced I had Raynaud's when really I know that was just my, you know, body was shutting down some of the blood flow to my fingers and toes. I was quite moody at times. And so all the signs were there while I was running at the top level. Did you also experience
2: stuff psychologically uh, in terms of were you pretty preoccupied with food did you have that part of the disorder or was it mainly kind of physical mental yeah
1: I I mean it did it definitely started off as performance only Mm -hmm. um when I first started I guess restricting and trying to lose weight um it was purely to get faster but over time it then became like about aesthetics and the more it became about aesthetics the more I yeah was thinking about food and it would you know kind of be a case of I, I just remember so many times having lunch and then an hour or two later, my stomach would rumble and I'd be like, you must be kidding me. I just mm-hmm. fed you like, <laughs> totally. you don't I can't be hungry again. Mm-hmm. Like I must just be bored. And I remember getting really angry at myself, like, okay, well you're just going to have to wait for another hour because I'm not giving, not giving you anything now. Um, and, and then so many things, you know, I was going out for dinner. So, okay, well, it's 4pm and I'm going out at 6.30 and I'm starving, but I know I'm going to eat a lot tonight. So I'm going to, you just have to have some carrots and shut up. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. You know, it's quite cool way of talking to myself just because I was angry at it for being hungry. I talked a lot about my like sweet tooth, how I had like a crazy sweet tooth. And my first website, my original blog was called Insatiable Sweet Tooth because it really was (laughs) insatiable. Like I, I always joked I could eat an entire tub of frosting in one go and I genuinely could. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That was because I was so good at eating very clean, eating very healthy so that I could save everything up. And then at night I could just go to town on my sweets without worrying too much about gaining weight. But yeah, I I did get into phases where I would weigh myself multiple times a day naked because, you know, you have have to keep it, you know, you can't have clothes affecting things. And the scale would, as, you know, we've heard many stories would dictate my day. We heard about Mary Kane talking about it. I felt the same thing. You know, I could go into the bathroom in a good mood and I would come out if I'd seen a number I didn't like, I'd be in a bad mood. And my husband would be like, What just happened? Were there difficulties
0: when you when you quit running with tackling kind of these different food attitudes while taking out the sort of element of exercise? Because you weren't
1: exercising at all, right? No yeah I stopped completely everything. Um, No and I know this kind of really frustrates people in recovery (laughs) um, because it doesn't make any sense and that is why I've only really admitted that I had an eating disorder or you know as I've said I, I don't know if we ever truly recover 100% so have I don't know. I always thought well how would I if I had an eating disorder how would I have just gone the other way so easily. How would I have put on 25 pounds with no problem and stopped running and not worried and not really had too much of a trauma or struggle during that transition? I mean, I did definitely have that struggle. And um, the book, No Period Now What, was a huge help for me in moments that I did kind of fear that paranoia. But Nancy Clark uh, was a great person for me to kind of shift my perspective during that time and, and see things differently and ease the fear of not being able to stop eating so much and ending up obese. But I really, yeah, as much as it frustrates people, um, I think because of that 14 years of straight training, because my sister had just had a baby and I'd seen that finally that desire to have a child was higher than my desire to run and just the burnout and the decision that I made the choice to step away myself. Yeah, I, I, I really kind of, I don't want to say breeze through it but it wasn't as difficult as most people that reach out to me seem to seem to find. Yeah.
0: I I relate to that actually. I I remember um I had an eating disorder as well and there was a point where my desire to not have it got large, <laughs> it got very large and there was enough motivation that I see it as this just like a huge shift where all the tension that was there in my eating disorder s- kind of melted away, even though there were struggles from there on out and certainly years of unpacking different attitudes. But there was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to stop having these behaviors. And I know that that's not the case mm-hmm. for everybody. I know that that can be really difficult. But I hear in you that this this desire for a child and a desire to recover your period, too, was so motivating that mm-hmm. it
2: really melted some of the other tensions away. I also wonder too, I don't know if this was the case for you, but if the a lot of the disordered eating and all of these concerns were wrapped up in the competitive running, did you experience having like kind of a normal relationship with food prior to getting really competitive in your running?
1: I I've wondered that as well, like um if it was with the running and and you know, and that's what people often ask me if I'd go back to professional running and the only way I could do it is if I could remove the any kind of pressure to perform and make it kind of an accidental if I was just kind of training and I accidentally ended up at the top again. That's the only way I really could see myself doing it without trying to control everything, but my dad did all the cooking when we were uh well, he still does, and he very much gave us like a well balanced meals for dinner he you know was very good at getting in foods that were good for us, but also He was never someone that restricted. If we went out to dinner with him, he would get whatever he wanted on the menu. So my sister and I learned that, and we took that approach. My mum did have an eating disorder before she had me. It took her five years to get pregnant with me, so she still had a few of the behaviours growing up, and I could see some of those looking back now. But I think my dad's kind of attitude rubbed off more somehow. Mm -hmm. I genuinely believe I did have a very healthy approach to eating um, until I overheard a coach telling an an athlete on my team in college that she could lose some weight and then I asked him the same question and he said yeah you could lose a few pounds I, I think until that moment I hadn't really considered how restricting or changing your foods could really make that much of a difference I'd seen I'd seen girls who'd barely eaten and had run well for a few years. To me, that always just seemed like a car trying to drive without any gas. Um, I didn't really understand how that worked, so um, I just kind of wrote them off as well. They're, they're like freaks that can get that can run on empty somehow.
2: Yeah, that's I. It's my story is pretty similar in that way. Of I didn't develop restrictive behaviors or attitudes until I got to college with my college distance running. Experience. And so, in my recovery, too, I think I, I would call myself I was an eater, <laughs> like going into that experience. And so, in my recovery process, I think there was a lot of years that I could kind of go back to of having relaxed attitudes around eating. And so, yeah, removing that competitive element for a bit um helped. and then kind of and then approaching that actually head on around weight and performance. And that's why I've been so interested in the topic over the past. 15 mm-hmm. years because can someone, you know, if, if that is a a component that makes somebody engage in disordered eating, like where are some of the examples of, or is it really, I've, I've been very interested in engaging that question. Like, do we have to be manipulating yeah. weight, um, to be at peak performance at the high levels? Yeah. I'm, I guess I felt got curious about kind of what you've been exposed to, um, in the elite mm-hmm. community.
1: Well, firstly, I can't speak to the last few years. Um, I haven't really been around that since 2016. And I do think the community has changed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. However, I saw a lot, a lot of disordered eating patterns and strange habits in the running world. And it definitely didn't make it any easier. Um, I remember multiple occasions where I'd try and set up a meal like the night before a race, um, because for me, the night before a race, the morning of a race was like, I would restrict, you know, many times, but that time I took it serious. I was going to eat a giant bowl of pasta or a giant, whatever meal I wanted to have. And so for me, that was non-negotiable. I didn't care what I, what my weight was the day I stepped out onto the, onto the start line because I knew that I couldn't run without fuel. So um, I would try and set up meals um, like, hey, do you want to go out to eat? And and people would initially say yes, but then one by one back out and say, I'm just going to eat in my room. Um, and I always got frustrated with that because that wasn't how I approached things. And then, you know, there'd be many cases where we'd go to events and stay in a hotel and everyone would get their food and take it back to their rooms. And I just couldn't really understand that, you know, and it, it was very... Uncomfortable, even when people were around, because especially the morning of, a lot of people like pick at their food and barely eat. And I'm quite like a mothering person, so I'd find it really hard not to say, like, "Don't you think you need a little more than that? Like a little more than half a slice of toast?" Because I couldn't see how they were doing it, still, but I couldn't say anything. But then that would make me feel like, "Well, am I eating too much?" Because they're faster than me. But it never got to the point where pre-race I would affect what I was eating
2: I ate what I wanted to eat and what I felt I needed to eat yeah yeah I mean I hear I gosh I sure remember those hotel room (laughs) the the funky things happening with food it's hard yeah and the isolation it's just that part is also really sad of the Mm -hmm. isolative nature of what athletes think that they need to be doing and then I even remember kind of the competitive feeling too of yeah not wanting, yeah, just kind of who's going to get the edge over the other person and, and how they might do that with their eating. And and all of it is just, I mean, at this point, I just feel like, oh, it's so sad because a lot of that is, it's not even accurate.
1: <laughs> There's also the side of it for me that I would think like, hey, this is part of the celebration. Like we get to go out for a meal before and and celebrate the fact that we're here and we're healthy and we get to run tomorrow. And yeah, okay, everyone's a bit nervous, but I'd always been very vulnerable and open about how I was feeling. So I kind of welcomed that time in it. Like I loved going out to like a, an Italian restaurant or whatever it may be, um, like taking my time picking a place that made pasta homemade on site or whatever yes. it might be that uh, other people would just, Oh, I'm just going to go to Panera bread. And I would just thought, Oh, Oh well,
0: uh, yeah, you anywhere.
1: Yeah, I appreciate so much your
0: like kind of tone of bewilderment around some of these other attitudes that you were watching around you. You're describing these different scenarios and like sitting there across from someone in, like at breakfast or like how is this person running so fast and not eating? Like there's such a bewilderment and sincerity in them that in mm-hmm. that I appreciate because it it does speak to how bizarre it actually is mm-hmm. that you could run that fast mm-hmm. and not eat and also it i mean from what i know too that that period of peak performance with very little nutrition is a very short-lived experience. Like you can't do that for very long. And so there is sort of a mystery around that of sort of like watching maybe someone in a period of their life before they've had an injury due to malnutrition or something like that, where you're like, mm-hmm. how is this working? Mm-hmm. Cause it really doesn't yeah. for very long.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but then on the other side of things, you know, I look at myself and I think, you know, I didn't have, a, well, I had, I had, I had one stress reaction um and that was like a year into into my like lack of periods, but the rest of the time I didn't have any bone issues whatsoever. you know that's one of the big signs if you keep getting injured, especially the you know the femoral the the sacral the the pelvic um fractures, and you know that's a massive warning sign, but I had restrictive behaviors and I definitely was monitoring my food and trying to lose weight. But yeah, I I never took it to an extreme because, like you said, it just kind of blew my mind that people could have the energy. Like I, I've said before, that I feel like it's um kind of like your battery, your your batteries are on are need a charge, like empty, or you need a new set of batteries. But you're trying to like play some music and through a speaker, and it's there's no batteries left. Like I just yeah. couldn't. How does that even work? So, but um my like love of enjoying food at experiences like at meals out Mm. or celebrations and things like that was in some ways, I think what saved me because I always had those kind of occasions of where I was eating enough to where I could get away with keeping going with this kind of lifestyle.
2: Yeah. You're, yeah, you're talking about the pleasure piece. And I think that's, you know, if, if a athlete is kind of always kind of on the, on the edge around how, how kind of, minimal I can eat, but not have any reds, you know, relative energy deficiency and sports um, symptoms. But then there's also this other aspect of, of what about, you know, not engaging in the pleasure side. And like you're talking about the wonderful opportunity for community and celebration and seeing people at these races and being part of a group of people who share a love for a sport and like that also being a driver for behavior is pleasure and Mm -hmm. enjoyment and, I didn't think about that in college as like something I was really missing out on. I didn't, it was, it wasn't until later that I could really experience all the grief of what I lost in my obsession with my performance and with food. And, and I'm hoping too that people that, that listen to this could even give a pause of like, it could be fun. It could be pleasurable. Like that part (laughs) could actually be something that people like you wouldn't, would not want to compromise. Um, that aspect of it
0: yeah it makes me curious too tina about um you described earlier kind of like this cruel voice in your head and you described that so well like i really could feel what it felt like for you when you were more restrictive makes me curious about like what what that voice sounds like now considering especially the fact that you've had this capacity for pleasure that hasn't really waned
1: um i mean i still have a lot of negative thoughts that come in but they're kind of everything is like flipped on its head right now and yeah. You know granted we know I'm six months pregnant that is mm-hmm. probably a huge part in this but yeah. to be totally honest right now this whole pregnancy I have not enjoyed food at all like I uh, it's really sad for me and in some ways yeah I've been kind of mourning it because every time I have to eat I'm like <laughs> I just like uh, like if I could have a drink at the beginning of the day that had all my calories I would I would do it because right now I just have no, I, I haven't really had like massive cravings for anything. I've had a few things that are kind of sound better than others, but right now it's more kind of a like walking into the kitchen, opening the fridge door and being like, Ugh, yeah. like what <laughs> sounds the least bad here? So it's yeah. kind of a bit of Aww. an anger at myself. Yeah. Like, like why aren't you, you know, I know I I, I am eating because I know I need to, it's only only because of the baby because if I I know that I need to eat to give the baby fuel to keep going but like so the negative voice right now is kind of a bit of like annoyed at myself for not like come on you're telling me you can't find anything that sounds good in the cupboard or the fridge like um (laughs) oh yeah um, it's, it's still quite negative but I know now to kind of you know how to talk back to myself so when I say that it'd be like well, you know what, like, okay, nothing sounds good, but something's got to sound somewhat okay. So just have some of that for now and then you can have something else in a little while. So just kind of, I've learned that their negative thoughts are always going to be there, but just how you respond to them can change. And um, you can, you know, like in when I was saying about you can eat some carrots and shut up earlier, <laughs> you know, the response would have been, yeah, but why Why am I so hungry now? Like that's obviously a sign you know, maybe maybe have some carrots with hummus. Okay, that's something a little bit more calorically dense. Maybe that will keep you hungry, uh, keep you full a little bit longer. So I just kind of a bit more of a gentle voice mm. in return to myself.
0: Oh, I know with. Clients that I've worked with, they expect that there's going to be sort of this like perfect, like always compassionate, always wise, always like Mm -hmm. exactly recovery oriented, whatever that means um, when it comes to food. But the way that you just described that sounds so much more realistic that there are times it's still – food doesn't sound that good or you're having trouble finding motivation to eat. Right now you're pregnant, so that really makes some sense. And it's more about the conversation that happens
2: internally, not just this sort of like perfect thought that's going to keep you going. Mm -hmm. And just what to deal with, I hear in that of you do have pleasure in food. And so now you're in this position again where you don't have full control over your body, you're pregnant. And with that part of it not is more, you know, you're not experiencing the desire and the pleasure as much how like you're going to, you're in a stage of mechanical eating a lot more and, mm-hmm. and having to just have grief around that of just kind of the reality of, of that's kind of where your body's at while being pregnant right now. Yeah. Um, and yeah. how you're managing that. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking I've had a, uh, we went to Mexico and my daughter got a bug and she's basically hasn't been able to eat much for a week and she finally turned a quarter with some medicine and she's like finally like i actually want something to eat (laughs) and i'm like wow to watch her go through a whole week of not wanting anything you know this little 10 year old Mm -hmm. and then i actually want something she had to do mechanically you know i we were just getting anything we could into her body but none of it was pleasurable right so just this like picture of yeah the the different stages of experiences with food
0: yeah yeah
2: Tina, I'm wondering where, like, kind of where you are right now. I know you're pregnant, and I'm not sure what your plans are with running um, after having this baby, and I know you have your own podcast where you've been interviewing athletes, and I'm just kind of curious kind of what you're seeing now um, in, in this role in the running community and kind of where you see the growth happening or places you have hope or... um what you see going on right now in the running community and, and reflections on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think things are definitely changing in the right direction. I I do think, obviously, Mary Kane was the biggest catalyst we've had to this conversation. But I think it goes so much more beyond just her sharing her story and everyone saying, that's so sad, that's so hard, you know, crying. And I think, you know, what can we actually do here? you know, the the biggest person that I feel has been helping with this is Lauren Fleshman. Um, I mean, she wrote the article um, the, to her high school self. That was a huge thing. But um, she's also been kind of advocating for colleges to take things more seriously, encouraging incoming high school kids or high school kids going into college to to vet their coaches, to t- talk to them about their periods and to talk to them about what the um, eating climate is like within the team and, and encouraging people. You know, if you go to visit a team and everyone just eats a salad, like that's a huge red flag. Like, So I think a lot of it is going to be the, the high school um, generation. Um, we've got to change it at that level, the college level. There's so many kids when you look around the college level that are just like you can tell that they're like hanging on by a thread. And like we said, they might last a year or so, but then they burn out. And until we can change that, that attitude and approach in college, it, we're just going to keep pumping out people who are going to shine bright for a few years and then burn out. But I do think there are people who are doing that. I hope that I'm one of them. Um, again, Lauren, I think is a huge one because people really look up to her and want to learn from her. As for myself, um, I mostly want to play a role within that. I want to do what I can to inspire other women and men, but particularly women, to show them that you are more than what you look like, that the way you look doesn't make a difference. And even that, we've got to remember this like, critical voice that I mentioned earlier like is always going to tell you that you're the big person, when in fact you're probably not, and it's probably not that not that different. We've all got these body distortions. So I'm hoping that I can be someone that can show people that they've got more to offer than the way they look. Um, but then my own running, I mentioned earlier, I I don't know. Right now, I would say there's a 30% chance I'd go back to it. I don't see a clear path for me back to the, that level without putting this pressure on myself of having to prove myself and having to like overcome the negativity I think um I would have to come at it at a kind of zen approach as to enjoying the process of pushing myself enjoying the struggle enjoying the the hard Mm -hmm. rather than it being a means to an end to me when I think of going back to elite running I think of putting myself in the well um you know work out so hard I fall over and throw up and I just don't want to go there. So, um, yeah, I think I'd have to find a different a different path and I, I still don't know if that's possible for me. Yeah, Tina,
2: when you're talking about that, it reminds me we've had, I think, a couple episodes on our podcast where we talk about this, like some of the work we've done at Opal with athletes around like an excellence versus perfectionism approach where the perfectionism is more outcome driven and the excellence is more the process driven um, and kind of helping people have a a blueprint and walk down that path of switching from kind of that perfectionism to the excellent side. And I, I really hear that I I just heard basically to use you kind of say that in in through your experience of what you'd what you'd need to do differently. Tina, you you were just talking about hoping to
0: be an inspiration for other runners and athletes and I definitely wanna claim that you are yes (laughs) um and i i know that you have a series on your podcast running for real called beyond running and that just seems like such a beautiful place where you're talking about issues beyond sort of the the specific category of running that are more mental health issues and that is just such a beautiful offering
1: yeah thank you well you know you said you say that um about me actually being already being an inspiration that's again a good example of our like critical minds yeah you know, um <laughs> I see that and I say yeah but you know Lauren's doing more or Cara's doing more or <laughs> blah, blah, blah. like you always kind of uh downplay what you what impact yeah. you've had but yeah um the beyond running series was just really important to me and, and I think a lot of that is because of what what I do everything running for real is about is the whole tagline is so you feel like you're not alone I get so many personal emails from people who pour their heart out to me, like telling me the deepest, darkest secrets, things that they haven't told um, anyone. And um, I, you know, I, I feel such a privilege that I, they feel brave enough to share that with, with me. But I also want to, you know, a lot of the time, I don't know what to say. Like, you know, I've had, I've had a few people tell me that they're thinking about transitioning and I, you know, I, I, I want to be supportive, but I, I, I don't have the, the knowledge of what to say. So things like that, you know, what can I do for that person in the future to make them feel less alone, to make them feel um, better. And that's where suicide came into things. Um, anxiety disorders. Um, I have covered eating disorders many times because if I can help just a few people with something that they're struggling with and they feel like they've got no one to turn to, then, you know, that's worth it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to keep finding ways to make people feel included um, because I, I I just hate the idea of someone suffering alone. Yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is
2: hugely significant that you've been open and that you have this venue to through your podcast where so many you have access. There's so many people that have access to you putting yourself out there and then people feeling the freedom to to then do that back and not feel isolated. I think that is incredible. I also was thinking I kind of relate to what you're saying of like, I'm not doing enough. But then I've also recently with so many people now, um, out there and trying to make changes in the running community and the sport community. I'm, I'm just, I feel like now more and more like, Oh, there's just so there's so much to be done. And we're all kind of in this together in different areas of the country and the world. And (laughs) we're doing our own, you know, parts with our, our own communities of influence and, um, it's mm-hmm. exciting to think like, you know, that we all are helping make make th- these changes. And I'm like, I've been so inspired by you. I mean, it's fun. I've been inspired by Lauren for years and you and Kara, And I love that these voices are becoming more public.
1: Yeah. Well, and I just want to add to that, that I, you know, I've said, I just said it myself that like I don't feel like I'm doing enough, but I, I want to say to anyone listening that like, w- you know, sometimes we get so caught up in numbers of like followers and like likes and shares and all this stuff, but like no one life is more valuable than any other. So like if you in your inner circle have, I don't know, 25 friends and one of them is struggling with something like an eating disorder and you help them get help, you point them to the right place to, um, you know, find someone who turns their life around. I mean, that's in itself is beautiful and wonderful, and like it's so like sad, and I do it as you heard, as well, that we we, we say, "Oh, well, I only helped one person, or I only have two hundred followers, so you know, I'm only, I can only help a few people, but like we all have our role to play, as you said, like it's not just the people in the limelight yeah totally. absolutely well, before we before
0: we end, um I know you said something earlier about Jamila Jamil and in in line with sort of talking about different inspirations and voices, I'd be curious to hear um, you know, maybe it's her, maybe it's someone else, just places that you're really finding some inspiration even beyond the the running community so that our listeners can can find those things too and benefit from them.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people in the running space, in the industry that are fighting the good fight and trying to get the word out. Um, Renu McGregor, as I mentioned, Dr. Gaudiani, um, Nancy Clark, Jesse Haggerty, Sarah Canney, all those come to mind in the kind of running space of people that are promoting the right attitudes and ideals. But Jamelia is, she's not in the running industry, not a runner as far as I know. I really like her. She, uh, she was Tahani on The Good Place. And um, she has set up her, I, I don't know if it's a foundation or it's, it's definitely a social media account. That's all I know. I think she's got one million, two million, maybe followers on that. Um, and it's called I Way, just spelt the way you'd think it would be spelled, I Way. And it's all about c- inclusion and just, you know, changing your perspective and, and making it a place where everyone can be a part of something.
0: It's absolutely oh. incredible. She has so many good conversations and wouldn't yeah. it be
1: cool if she talked to
0: you one day? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I've got her on my list, but I think I'm quite a long way away from that. Especially if <laughs> quite,
2: I'm binge watching uh, The Bad Good Person. Place right now. So my daughter and I are in almost done with season two. She's we good. love that show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh Well, Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. It's been really wonderful to hear more of your story and your, and your thoughts. You have so much wisdom and, and inspiration to offer. And we really appreciate having you here with us
1: today. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. As I said, you guys are changing the lives of people, you know, who who need it. And i uh, ever grateful. So on behalf of all those people you've helped as well, I want to thank you as well. Thank, thank you, you so much. If you
0: want to learn more about Tina, we definitely suggest that you do. <laughs> um, you can uh, read her wonderful blog post at Um We'll also be linking to her podcast so you can keep up to date with who she's talking to and what she's talking about. So definitely subscribe to Running for Real as well. Thank you to Daniel Gunther at Jack Stroll Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Join us next time.